and welcome back to Kvikminderpod, an Icelandic cinema podcast. I'm Rob Watts, and on this podcast I discuss 21st century Icelandic film with my good friend Ellie Cawthorn. We've reached the final leg of another journey around the cinema of Iceland, and it's Reykjavik where we shall end for Balfin Sater's multi-narrative drama Life in a Fishbowl, or Vonastrætti from 2014. It's wonderful to end the series with a film by one of our favourite directors, and fascinating to begin to understand his visual style and the types of stories he wants to tell. Thanks to all our new listeners and the stalwarts, and thanks to those who engaged with us on Instagram and Twitter over the last few months. We can always be found there at Kvikmindapod. That's K-V-I-K-M-Y-N-D-A-P-O-D. I'll be back at the end to let you know what the future holds for Kvikmindapod, but for now, here's our final chat of the series. Hello, Ellie. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good. How are you? I'm great, thanks. It's nice, actually, and reasonably warm in your flat with no heating on in this cost of living crisis. As poor podcasters can't afford heating these days. Yeah, I've cut out all the chat that we just had about, you know, smart meters (laughs) and uh, wrapping up in blankets. You mean the audience don't want to hear how many pence each item in our homes costs a run per hour probably not and i don't either to be honest um and also if a lot of our listeners are in iceland they're probably used to cold Mm. but also warm interiors this would be absolutely nothing no although i'm pretty sure they've got it sorted in iceland Mm. that you know everything's geothermally heated so it doesn't really cost anything cost of living crisis means nothing over there no but they have had their fair share of crises (sighs) Nice segue. <laughs> I see what you did there. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, we were talking about the financial crisis last week with Gunnar. And this week we're talking about a film set kind of just prior to all the craziness. Uh, so we're talking about Life in a Fishbowl from 2014 uh, by Baldfin Sater, who we haven't seen since mm. series one. We haven't. And It's been long overdue because I really loved Let Me Fall. I think I might have said it was my favourite film of series one. Very possibly. I've not gone back to listen. Someone else will tell us. Uh, But it is fantastic, isn't it? It's an absolutely brilliant film. So it's great to be revisiting his work. And a film that came out before Let Me Fall. So it's good to start seeing the evolution of this director Mm -hmm. and his style. And yeah, shall I give a little synopsis? It's not much of a synopsis that I've written this time. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into it, but here we go. In 2006 in Reykjavik, the lives of nursery teacher and part-time sex worker Ake, critically lauded but very much alcoholic writer Mori, and ex-footballer turned corporate businessman Solvi intersect, each one making a mark on the others. Is that all you're going to give us? That's all I'm going to say, because we're going to get right into it anyway, aren't we? Mm Mm-hmm. I like what you did there with the synopsis that each character, each of our key characters had two sides mm-hmm. to them. And I hadn't really thought about it until you put it like that. We no. Have, <laughs> you know, mum and kindergarten worker who has to moonlight as a sex worker when she doesn't really want to. Mm-hmm. We have a writer who is critically lauded, but also an alcoholic and has got a lot of issues there. And we've got, you know, dashing, charming former footballer who's had to sell his soul to the mm. banks so the way you put it there actually has really illuminated these characters <laughs> for me thank you oh i'm glad to have done that Oh, oh, oh. 
to the Viking. So let's start with our main characters, because this is a film much like things like Crash, Magnolia, films with multi-narratives. So all three characters we see throughout the film, their lives slightly or even mm. more intersecting and, you know, how they influence each other. I always think that narratives like this, where you have multi-narratives and they all play into each other and come in and out, always feels to me like it's adapted from a book. Okay. And I don't know why that is. I think probably because it's just quite a common literary trope. Mm-hmm. More and and some sometimes I think a book can sustain multiple narratives more easily than a film can. Sure. Um I mean there's only 3 here so I think the film sustains them all pretty well. But do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. It in in the printed word you can at least see the distinction between each narrative I suppose. You get mm. go from chapter to chapter often where it's focused on one person's story. And then, yeah, as you get on, you start seeing them cross over. Yeah. Whereas here it can be a bit more like, oh, when are we? Where are we? Because we don't get any date or time stamps. Uh, And this one, so we've got the three characters. We also have flashbacks, Mm. which sort of throws a little... uh, Spanner in the works. Yeah, a little bit, because it did confuse me initially. There was something about this film that really did make me feel like it was adapted from a book. Was it the title? Uh, (laughs) Because the title is also the title of the book. Okay. But something in its structure, its plotting, its use of characters and how they were intersected, I think it felt also, and I actually really don't mean this as an insult, like a really good kind of TV drama. It it could have been as well, Mm -hmm. maybe in three parts or four parts because you've got all these different things running alongside one another. But obviously it's not adapted from a book, so fine. No, but we do have in the film the novel Life in a Fishbowl. Of course, there's the novel in the in the film as well, and then references to other novels, and the fact that one of our main characters is a writer, mm-hmm. which all adds to that literary exactly. connection sense. Um, and talking about those books, so the one that we see our writer Murray give to his publisher in this film is titled Life in a Fishbowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the previous one is titled Lomera Fatla. Let Me Fall. Yeah. Well, exactly, which is the previous director's film. What is he doing here? He's trying to mess with our minds. Yeah, I don't think that whatever Mori wrote is the film that we then later saw. I don't think there'll be any connection between the the storylines. What do you think? Um. Well, this is part of what confused me because also there's this whole question of um, Maury writing this book that is essentially about himself. It's kind of an auto- autobiography. So, which then brings in layers of if he's writing a book called Let Me Fall and then there's a film. It's very complex. Well, I was thinking about this and I wonder whether, you know, his previous stuff, his previous books, Let Me Fall and, and the like, were just fiction. And here we've got a fictionalized version of his life because we mm. hear his publisher yeah. say, you should just put your name in it because then People we all know, know it's, it's you, you anyway. But one of the, I've probably mentioned this guy before on the podcast, but the Norwegian writer Karl Ove Knausgaard, he started writing fiction and then he's most famous for his six part autobiographical fiction work. So essentially it's all published as fiction. It's the story of his life written from a first-person point of view, with his name in it, but other people's names perhaps changed, but written as if it was fiction. I'm not sure where the distinction lies there, or how it gets to be known as fiction. But Mm. Mori writing this reminded me of that, and I wondered whether maybe that was an influence on on what he's doing there. Yeah, it's all a bit meta, isn't Mm. Isn't it? It makes me think of, there's a book called The End of Eddie, which is a French book, um, which I've read in translation, which is a similar thing where there's a central character, it's fictionalised as a central character which has, shares the author's name 
and it's kind of based on his life. But I guess pe- people maybe don't always want to really throw themselves behind stuff as autobiographies because then they're like tying themselves down to one definitive version of events. Whereas oh, that's a good point. If you say it's fiction, you can play with the narrative or with the narrative arc or the truth a bit more yeah, and pl- make a better book. That's it. Play with the truth. But also if you... And not f- piss you, everyone off. <laughs> or if you forget something or misremember something... Yeah. At least then you aren't on the hook for yeah, yeah, pissing someone off because you've misremembered. But having said that, I'm pretty sure Knausgaard got it mm. in the neck from his ex-wife and various other people from throughout his lives because, you know, it's quite clearly them. In this context, it's a bit confusing and meta though, isn't it? Because we have a film that's about a writer that writes a book that's got the same name as the film and has written a book that has the name <laughs> of the director's future film. Yeah. It's a bit of a tangled web. It is. And you know what confuses it even more is that the both film titles, both English film titles, are the names of songs by direct <laughs> by director Balpin Sater's friends band. So Birgir Urn's band Mouse had songs called Life in a Fishbowl and Let Me Fall. So the title track from their ninety seven album is Lomera Fatla Athino Eira. And the second one is Lifith i Fiskaburimi, which is Life in a Fishbowl. Whether they have anything thematically to do with these films, I don't know. But yeah, it's all very sort of tangled and confusing. Mm. But that title, Life in a Fishbowl, it's quite evocative, I suppose. Mm. Because, you know, we spoke about last week and in many episodes how Reykjavik's very small, the country's yeah. very small. It's very mm. hard to get away from people you know. So if you're living, trying to live a double life or if you're the the drunk author who is really, really famous, how do you wander around without people knowing that? Mm. And it's a nice idea, isn't it? That even people you don't know, these lives all intersect mm-hmm. um, in ways that they're not always aware of. Yeah. Um, so sometimes they're kind of seeking each other out and sometimes they've met, but they don't even remember they've met. And they overlap in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, the case of city living in Reykjavik. As Ake points out to the one person who clearly doesn't know who Mori is, who works at the nursery. He's Mori. He's a famous writer. He's probably not, you know, at the nursery to perv on little children. Although he doesn't help himself by looking like know. a utter just... Wrong in. Yeah. And finally, one last point on the title. The Icelandic title is not Life in a Fishbowl. It's Vonastraiti. Now, (laughs) directly translated, that means Hope Street, which I also think is the name of the road on which Maury lives in the film. I'm so confused. (laughs) But there's this idea, I guess, of, yeah, maybe it is the name of the road in the film, but Hope Street, Mm -hmm. again, that plays into the themes of the film. Like We've got three characters... Mm -hmm. One who's already been through a tragedy. Well, no, two who've been through quite big, tragic moments in their past. Solvi, and we'll come to Solvi in a second because his storyline I'm interested in. Mm. But these two characters have gone through shit and they meet each other. Mm. And there's this kinship and this friendship. And I think ultimately the story is hopeful for the most part by the end. So mm. looking at the film as this like long, not street, this journey towards hope is, yeah. is kind of a nice way to look at it. Definitely. I think it is a hopeful film ultimately and I think it's also a really empathetic film. Yeah. I, what I loved about Let Me Fall was that it took characters who in a lot of ways weren't very empathetic Mm -hmm. addicts and addicts you know generally just get a rough a rough reputation in society don't they and it really 
gave them humanity, uh, but it didn't shy away from the bad things they did. So it basically mm. took characters who may be in a bad place and doing bad things, but it, it really made you feel for them. And I think that is carried through into this film. Or you could say it's carried through from this film into that sure. film. Um, that we have characters who do quite abhorrent things at times. Or I'm thinking of Maury here, mm -hmm. when we see in flashbacks that he's beat his wife um, and behaved pretty terribly. He does terrible things in the course of this narrative as well. And characters that people might judge for their lifestyles and choices. So Ake, obviously, is a sex worker. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes those characters and it really makes you understand them or it gets inside their head. It gives them like a lot of agency and, and compassion. For sure. I think that's what Baldwin Sater is really good at, is giving us these characters. And yeah, the films are two hours plus, but it really does enable you to get into their world into their life and into their minds and see things from both sides and ultimately let you make a decision on how you feel about them yes so should we start with talking about ache herself then mm -hmm. played by hera hilmar who is icelandic film director hilmar oddson's daughter now we haven't covered any of his films yet uh, mainly because he only did one film this side of 2000 okay. uh, starring Ingvar Sigurdsson but he does have a new film coming out in the new year called mm -hmm. Driving Mum which looks to be an incredibly dark comedy so hopefully we'll be able to cover that next year but yes Hera Hilmar who is fantastic yeah. in this as Ake and yeah like you say Ake is a single mother we know she's got a daughter who's eight and she has sex with men to make money and that's kind of how it starts isn't it we see her working in both jobs and then just sort of making decisions that you can understand mm. but aren't necessarily the ones you think she should make I don't know yes it's interesting isn't it because she says oh she's 24 she's got this eight-year-old daughter but she looks like she could be 18. Oh, she... But this is another thing I was going to say. That first interaction with the guy, yeah. she looks so young. Yeah, it's disturbing. But when you see her going out for her night out, she looks much older. Mm. Very, very different style of dress. And, I mean, I guess she's playing to what her... Clientele. Clientele want. After. And it's worth saying, isn't it, that the... I mean, there's many different ways of portraying sex work, isn't isn't there on camera and this is very much of the um stark bleak variety like these are the worst most unsexy sex scenes you've ever seen very much so she's not there for fun she's no. not having a nice time this doesn't feel like it's an empowering situation for her it feels like for her this is something she has to do because she is in a lot of debt she's just turning up she's letting herself be used and leaving again she doesn't bring herself to the to the job even mm. and i think that's quite interesting in that even the men don't wish to be kind of loved they don't need any emotion because mm. she's there cold as you like just yeah zoning out and they're going for it but that i mean that's all they want it's pretty Pretty grim depiction, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's a very grim depiction. Um, but then we get this different side of her life, which is the love between her and her daughter. Oh, yeah. Um, which clearly then obviously fills out the picture of why she's doing something she's clearly not comfortable with and clearly isn't happy about. And I thought that that side of things was really nicely portrayed. Every moment that she's with her daughter, Heather is just so sweet and lovely and she clearly cares for her. And even in the moments when Maury is round and they're all together, it's just mm. so nice. And they clearly, yeah, they care for her. And that's the sort of the bright side of her life. That's why she'll go through all those terrible things and why she ends up going to Florida, which we'll come to in a bit. Oh, 
Og jólatré líka. Ha, ég ætla ekki fara að kaupa jólatré á, á Flórida. En jú, ég get kannski keft jólatré við komum heim. Já. Þú Ertu að fara með Móra? Nei, ég er ekki að fara með Móra. Er hann kærastin minn? Nei, ástin mín, hann er ekki kærastin minn. Ha. Bara góðu vinir. Þeir nú samt næst í alltaf saman. Heiða. So she's living with her daughter in this flat, but we find out that her parents are wealthy. Mm. Now, I was going to ask you, there are a couple of things in this film where if I hadn't watched it a second time, I might not have picked up on, or I, I didn't pick up on. So the one is that Solvi is a fo- was a footballer. I didn't really notice that the first time. But the second one was her parents being well-known and wealthy. And I totally didn't really get that especially when we see them they don't come across as rich people or or people who come from money well they come across as people who have a comfortable home which i guess is is the point that she's having to take on all this sex work that she she doesn't want to to pay this overdraft and bills and the idea is that then you see her parents and they they're clearly fairly stable Mm -hmm. and got a fairly comfortable existence so you would think well why wouldn't she just borrow well, money from them or, or stay with them. So I guess that adds to the to the question of her past and why sure. and why she's had to make these decisions that she has had to. Yeah, because there's a lot of background questions going on from the start that don't get resolved yeah, until the final third. But on that subject of her parents, I quite liked being told where they lived because it reminded me that when we were watching Cop Secret and sure you won't remember this but the two main characters in cop secret one is the cop from Reykjavik the other is a cop from Garðabæjar which is where her parents live the country cop small town cop sure because Garðabæjar the joke in the film is that Garðabæjar is so rich and affluent and well off that doesn't need Uh... any policing while Reykjavik is this sort of much more proper city crazy place where you know stuff is going down all the time and I love the idea that in that film that you know it's it is a place that's divided the the kind of locals and in this film it kind of is similar because you've got the parents just on the outskirts of town who have the money but she won't go to them Uh, and she's in Reykjavik doing yeah nasty stuff it's a question of pride isn't it I guess Mm -hmm. yeah and do you think it's pride that keeps Mori from revealing his secrets until He's written the book. It's probably not pride, is it? It's just a sense of shame, I guess. Yes, but I would get the sense that this idea of life in a fishbowl, right? That everybody knows what happened to his daughter. That's true, I suppose. We've launched right in there, haven't we? And not explained what happened to his daughter. That's okay. (laughs) We can talk about it. I would assume that everybody knows what happened to his daughter. I mean... We may as well tell them. Well, we've been spoiling every film we've ever talked about. So, yes, let's get into it. So we find out in a flashback that after a fight between him and his wife that got violent, Maury's daughter runs out, runs onto the river or the... She runs onto Chernin, which is the big lake slash pond outside City Hall in the centre of Reykjavik, yeah. And falls through the ice and dies, which to me is very triggering because number one lesson for my mum as a child was Mm. always never ever go on a frozen pond or any kind of ice. I think maybe, um, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Little Women, but (laughs) there's a famous scene in Little Women where one of the characters, Mm. no spoilers for this like 1860s (laughs) novel here, but um, falls through the ice and is fine. But it's like always been drilled into me. I don't know why my mum was obsessed with that. Don't go on did, frozen lakes. Did lakes and ponds get frozen much more often up north? Up up north up in the 90s. North. Yeah, I didn't really think I had much opportunity, to be honest. But even if I had, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near them. Well, well done to your mum. <laughs> um, it is well known in Iceland that that lake does freeze over. 
So running across it as a child probably, I mean, it's still very dangerous, but it, I guess people are slightly less concerned. Mm. But that scene is just so well done because yeah. you have the two narratives playing out at the same time, the two children mm. running towards the ice because you've got, yeah, Mori has his, the fight with his wife in the past. Mori abandons Hather in the flat on her own in the, in the present. present and she leaves the flat we know that she's got diabetes which is Chekhov's diabetes <laughs> Chekhov's insulin stick uh EpiPen if that's the is that the Chekhov's word Chekhov's Chekhov's EpiPen there we go uh but they're played out at the same time so the kids are running to the ice and we don't we I mean, I was watching it next. One of them is going to go in. It's immensely stressful, isn't it? Very stressful. So brilliantly shot. Uh, but you're right. It's uh, it's Collar, his daughter, who falls in. She falls in and gets trapped. But he f- goes after her. Mm. What's make, what makes it even more tragic is he's, he's trying to save her, falls in himself and smashes his head and just <sighs> gets knocked unconscious. And so the film opens with him being dragged or with him being resuscitated on the side of the pond. Oh my God, it does. I hadn't even realised. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is the thing. The films, you, you forget about some of these things. Like, I'll remember that moment. I wonder what that means. And then you don't. But that's, yeah. So it opens with him being saved. And everyone's so happy that he's been saved. But little do they know, his daughter's in there too. And at this point, later on in the film, is when we see that yeah, she didn't survive and pretty bad and so of course that gives us a backstory doesn't it of why this great writer has become what he has which is essentially well obviously he's an alcoholic but he's kind of just hanging around bars getting beaten up by people he's got a very like nihilistic approach to life he's not looking after himself in any way shape or form no he still does seem to be quite good at what he's good at though i know he can somehow write a a five star (laughs) award-winning novel when he's like absolutely off his face every day all day but you know i guess hemingway yeah people do it people do it (laughs) it's i mean maybe you know just helps the creative juices flow in that scenario (laughs) hey i guess so i mean it's why it is widely known that drugs and alcohol help but we get we get these things, these tragedies kind of drip fed throughout the film. And that opening scene is one of them. But there's also that moment that ties in with what we're saying about him being still quite a cognizant and well, I don't know, well-versed guy. That he goes up to the open mic night and he reads a poem out, which is a beautiful scene. And in the first watch, I was like, yeah, it's very nice. He's, he's very poetic. But on second watch, he's just describing what happened when Collar died. And it is, yeah, it hits even harder the second time. Harrowing. Very, very much. And yeah, just a really clever kind of device that if you're paying enough attention, you might be able to start piecing things together. But I never do that on a first watch. <laughs> I'm terrible. I just let everything wash over me until I'm surprised at the end. <laughs> That's probably a good way to be. You get yeah. the joy of the surprise, you know. Or I'm, the sadness or of the, the sad, surprise. Yeah, that's very true. I'm always trying to second guess anything and be like, "Really? What caused this? Where's this? Where's this going to go? I bet this is going to happen." Oh, so I wonder. Did you watch the most recent Lord of the Rings TV show? Yes, I did. Did you know the thing? Oh well, yes, I did know the thing. Okay. I partly guessed, narrowed it down, but also. Mm. Um, everybody on the internet was, you know, there's too much chat. There's too much chat. See, that's one of the good things about Icelandic film. It doesn't get spoken about enough to really ruin things for you uh, on an everyday basis. We're here to do that. Um, But yeah, in that series, I did not even know we were supposed to know that someone was someone. And it was a shock. (laughs) See, I just had big old nerd central next to me telling me about the different theories of who could be a certain person snore <laughs> and why this person couldn't and this person could because they were you know involved in this age of whatever anyway you could cut all out <laughs> um yeah talking of those narrative kind of drip feeding moments so 
with Ake, we have her dad and her parents. Dad, played by Quick Minderpod actor extraordinaire <laughs> Theodore Uliason, who, you know, is great. Mm. Although he's quite, he seems quite old to be her dad. But mm. anyway, when she goes round, pretty much every time she goes round with her daughter, Heather, we get told this guy, why is this guy here? If he's here, Heather uh, cannot be here and she'll get dragged away. And we don't know who he is in that first instance. And we don't know why she hates on him so much. But something is there. Something is not right, is it? I like the term that you use there of narrative drip feeding. Because I think that is what it is. And it's like things kind of slowly come into view. Mm -hmm. And obviously it transpires that this is her grandfather who abused her. But what I think isn't clear at any point well, wasn't clear to me, maybe it was to you on a second viewing, was how much her parents were aware of that? I I feel like they weren't, but I don't know, the mum, mm. if there's a weak link in this film, I think it's the mum. In terms of narrative in terms of, explanation, in, in terms, terms of, of character In terms of character and acting. I don't know whether it's the acting or whether that mum really is that just ridiculously unaware of everything. She's so. a damp sandwich. Yes, nice uh, re reference there to your strange saying that you brought up before. <laughs> uh, but she is, she really is. Like, it's hard to tell whether she's aware and wants to ignore it and mm. buries it or whether she just was so unaware and just didn't know that she couldn't have an opinion on it. I think perhaps it's the former. Because if you think about the fact that Ake won't accept any help, well, she'll obviously accept childcare, but she won't accept any money from mm. them. Um, she clearly doesn't have a good relationship with her mother. I think, you know, maybe she said, raised accusations um, or told them what, that what was happening and they and they didn't believe her or um, mm. that that's the kind of, the story that I filled in in the background. Sure. That. Yeah, I, I guess it feels like her dad understands her mm. to a degree, but is also willing to listen to his wife and let Hayther mm. be there so long as Ake doesn't know. But if they knew, would you really put a young girl near mm. her? I don't know. Maybe he didn't know, but she did, but had buried it. Yeah, I feel like... If that was at the top of their mind, then you can't bring another young girl near her. I don't know. What did you think about the moment that this all came out right at the end? Because her granddad had been a drug abuser and was apparently and was now off the drugs, but basically dying when we see him in the hospital. What did you think of that moment where she's, she confronts him? Mm. Did it seem like it was like all this exposition dump? It was a slight expedition dump, yes. But I guess I found it realistic perhaps or or interesting how little how little catharsis there was. There was no like kind of he was basically just unconscious. Mm. She was never gonna get an apology from him. She also wasn't gonna get this big confrontation with him. It was it was a bit of an exposition dump, but I guess it was this sense of there wasn't going to be some kind of closure. Mm. She wasn't going to get what she needed and then be like, oh, I guess it's all in the past now. Okay. So I thought that that was at least neatly kind of maneuvered. Right, because I, I felt like, well, this is the moment that we've been building to sort of. We knew something was going to happen, but maybe now she's said it out loud and again for her mum to hear that, okay, now she can move on. Because the end, you know, she is happier, whether, you know, a lot of that will be to do with Murray's money, I'm sure, that she can now live a, a decent life. But I feel like there was a, a degree of her being like, right, well, you're going to be dead in a minute. I've said it all out loud, maybe for the first time in, I don't know, what, nine years. Uh, and mum's heard it. She can't ignore that now. Let's try moving on. I read it slightly differently that just if something like that happens to you, I don't think there is a neat conclusion to it where you sure. where you kind of say, 
uh, you abuse me. This is all the terrible things and this is how I feel. And the person says, oh, I'm sorry. And then conveniently dies. I think well, he didn't apologize anyway. Yeah. But I, yeah. So I felt like that was a fairly realistic portrayal mm-hmm. of. Well, events. especially given that Hather seemingly is a child of incest. So she's going to have to live with that for the rest of her life. But she seems to have sort of come to terms with it to a degree more than she had by the end. And, you know, their relationship's always been very special. And you get that final kind of look where she sat, sits next to her on the sofa and just looks at her like, cool, you're my daughter. I love you. And this is life and we're good. Get <laughs> So her story has all these ups and downs, but is kind of mostly focused on the friendship that she has with Maori, who is played by Thorstein Bachmann. Who we've seen many, many times. Yeah. He's a great actor. He's on actor. great form in this film. Isn't he? Because he's got a lot of different things to do. He's got to play him in the past as this basically pre-alcoholic days where he's just kind of a general guy. <laughs> That's a bit he's just a normal. normal. He's not quite a normal guy, What's is that? he? There's just not... What's that meme? That CBeebies meme? He's just a normal a guy. A man. He's just a man. An innocent man. Isn't that... <laughs> Well, that's what he is at the Um, start, right? But, yeah, he... So, obviously, that side of things. Then he's got to have a more sympathetic side to him in the present where we kind of see that he's good-hearted, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And we we get this uh, vision kind of shining through the drunkenness of his intellect and things. But then there is this darker side to him, which is much less sympathetic. So he's got a lot. He's got a lot to get his teeth into there. Yeah, and he grows his hair, so he looks pretty unrecognisable. Mm. Um, and it's probably quite useful to show that he's a lot older now, because you know, it was all filmed at the same time. Remember, this is a film. I'm glad that you explained how, how the premise are. of a film works. There, thank you. <laughs> Only four series in, guys. They film these things mostly. <laughs> At the same time, over a course of months. So yes, his relationship with Ake is really interesting because depending on you know your outlook or what you may have seen on film before, it could go a couple oh, of different yeah. ways. I was so like tense about this for quite a lot of the film. And I think <laughs> the film knows that. And I think it kind of allows space for that and kind of almost revels in that where it's like, oh, he's old and... Like, I'm much older. How much? What, 20 years older, At probably? Least, yeah. He's 20, and he's, you know, he's an alcoholic. He's got this long, scraggly beard. And it go it, it lets you be like, oh, no. Is this going to become a romance? Are they going to get together? I really hope not. It mm. feels creepy. I don't like it. And then it says, it takes that to the real edge, doesn't uh, it? Sure. And then kind of goes... No, we're not going to do that. Don't no. worry. But the thing, that's the thing is, you don't want that to happen because their friendship just sort of blossoms out of nowhere. They meet. And I don't know how many 24-year-old women would befriend this old guy, drunk guy, as easily. But, mm. you know, Ake, she's her own woman. She's made lots of personal choices that not everyone would necessarily make. So she starts drinking with him and... I don't know why she wouldn't get served at the bar, that it had to be him that got the drinks, because in my experience, it's not usually the guys that get served <laughs> first. But he, that relationship starts in the bar, and 
it just carries on that first evening they're having a great time and if anyone's saying anything about sex it's ache mm. and you can see in Maury's eyes that he's like uh no this is not he knows even drunk Maury knows that's not the way to go but she's the one who persuades him to come back to hers for coffee mm. and that's all that happens and yeah I just love the way that they built this friendship and ultimately like you're saying that specific moment where she leans in and kisses him on the lips it's her decision to do mm. that yeah. so this boundary of friendship relationship which is very common in french like intense friendships like that i think mm. was really really well done it was nice well to see managed. it come from that side as well because very often it comes from the male side yeah it definitely left him kind of preserved his dignity by doing that and and if he'd done it you'd think oh he's a creepy old man he always wanted this all along uh-huh. so it really helps save him and i guess their friendship the premise is i guess that they're both really two lost souls they're mm. like two outsiders um of society and and that's where their kinship lays yeah they so like i think we talked about it with briefly weirdly with first that they're these outsiders who meet and sort of learn to help and rely on each other to the point where she feels so comfortable with him that she leaves her daughter with him which i thought was a very questionable decision yeah two things one general safeguarding don't (laughs) just generally general safeguarding especially when you yourself as a child have experienced Mm -hmm. abuse general safeguarding not great two she does know he's an alcoholic she does and an alcoholic is probably not who you want to be looking after your kid no not solo it's mad there's a line where she says i trust maori more than you'll ever know way more than granddad it's like fine Mm. but geez i guess maybe maybe that's a slight narrative hole in the film that maybe we're meant to infer that they have a bit of a longer and more more continuous relationship than we get to see on screen because obviously you can't yeah show all of that i mean there's a couple of lines where somebody says oh you're always together mm-hmm. um which are inferring that there's there's more to their relationship than where we than we've seen depicted definitely but i think maybe that is a point where it slightly fell down where you thought Really, you're going to leave it with this? Leave your daughter with this guy? We recognise that you're friends. Yeah. And it's a good friendship. But yeah, he's still an alcoholic who is very much still drinking. So yeah, there's all sorts of bad stuff could happen and does happen. Uh, I was watching a film called Can You Ever Forgive Me last week? I don't know if you've seen it. It's Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Wait, is it the Poison Pen Letters one? That's the one. No, I have seen that, yeah. The Marielle Heller film, which in many ways isn't the same at all. (laughs) In many, many ways. It is about a writer, weirdly, but it's also about she leaves her cat with Richard E. Grant. Yeah. who Who we know is very much a drunk and an unpredictable kind of guy. And he leaves, she leaves him at her flat to look after the cat cat dies with that fresh in my mind the second that she let him let, let Maury look after Heather, I was like oh no. no yeah it was only gonna go one way yeah but thankfully it doesn't go that way yeah. really Heather has a an attack Episode. but somehow makes it to her grandparents and all is okay but I think I think Ake let him off a little bit too easily. Oh, way too much. Like, that is num- that is kind of unforgivable crime. <sighs> yeah. Like, that is number one. If I leave my child with you, don't leave them alone and go off and get drunk. It's true. It's, it's quite unforgivable. It's a plot point that the film kind of very swiftly moves on yeah. from. Because she, she goes around his flat. He doesn't apologise. Uh, but she discovers... A, about his daughter only well she sees the room and then she reads about it in the novel but i don't see how that's enough for them to then get back onto friendship terms well i guess they don't really 
Well, no, I suppose not. They end with him giving her all the money and him yeah. uh, pissing off to Sardinia. Good for him, I guess. Yeah. Did you like his moustache? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was too dangly down the edges. It was quite um, musketeer-like. Yeah, I didn't like it. No. I don't like... I mean, everybody have whatever moustache you like, mm-hmm. but I don't like the ones that go curve around the edge and go down the side. Yeah, sure, I know what you mean. They kind of have two separate curls almost. Mm, yeah, no. No. But you know what we haven't spoken about? Solvi. <laughs> At all. The, the third wheel of this film. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot going on in this film. Because you have these two, the two characters, Aiku and Mori, that we've discussed a lot. As we said, they're both outsiders. They both had a trauma. They both have a, a connection through experiences with daughters. Um, they're, they're really kind of interwoven and you can see the thematic similarities going in there. Mm-hmm. And then we have this kind of completely tonally different um, experience of the Flash former footballer who becomes a banker. So we've got these like people on the real fringes of society, like grasping around for money for a bit of, for survival. And then we have this guy on the other hand. And for a long time in the film, I was like, how are these going to match up? Uh-huh. And they do they do ever so slightly for like very kind of not blink and you'll miss it but they're the relate he doesn't have a relationship with the two characters in the way that they have with each other mm. so yeah i mean he's sort of an outsider in this world that he's now in because he was a footballer now he's in the bank world the financial world so there's that kind of thematic connection but yeah it feels it and this is I imagine deliberate that it does feel very different mm. it's a different type of person it's a different type of Reykjavik um, and one that's very much of its time like pre-collapse and it's obviously something Baldwin wanted to explore but I don't know that it needed to be in this film mm. if you took him out and use that time to maybe flesh out a few things in the Ake and Mori story, yeah, then perhaps it might have been better served. I mean, I did enjoy that subplot, but like you say, it sits slightly weirdly within this film. Yeah. I guess it, it goes to show that there are these two sides to Reykjavik, that mm. the, the, the little people, the inequality, the little people in inverted commas can be affected by the big banker types as they were in that period. And I wrote down so much jargon <laughs> about like... Banking crap. My favourite was oh. um, go buy this hotel. Here are the people's names. Go and buy it. What shall I offer them? Or like, what's the deal? Or give me the details. There aren't any details. Just go and buy it. Yeah, <laughs> that's I, not how you do I a felt, deal. <laughs> I felt a lot like even maybe the filmmakers weren't hundred percent sure what Siggy's deal was. Yeah, like what was he doing to the numbers and yeah. who was he trying to impress? How was he going to be the guy? Because what it felt like, Siggy is the worst character. Mm. What a horrible man. But it felt like they were trying to say, this guy is the reason these type of people were the bankers who brought down the Icelandic banks and whatever. But I never really understood what he was doing Mm. with regard to fixing the numbers or... Have you watched the BBC um, drama Industry? I have not. So that's set in um, a bank. And every other word is like so jargony. But you can tell (laughs) that the people who've written it at least have like an incredible consultant. That They have gone like deep. Mm. They have gone deep into the jargon. And they know like it's the same as Succession Succession. would be a really good other example. Here it did feel a bit more like. You fixed the numbers. We don't really know what that means, but but just, it's bad. But don't worry about that. Yeah, uh, he was very much a kind of he was much more of a comic villain than you know uh, more nuanced characters like Mori, who mm. you know has both sides. Siggy seemed to just be in everything for himself. Didn't care for his wife. Didn't care for his soon-to-be-born. Yeah, possibly he was damaged. He's maybe a bit too terrible. Unbel- like maybe people in banks are like that, well, but like someone was unbelievably doing terrible, stuff. terrible. Yeah, 
I was trying to understand, you know, Solvi's trying to impress and he's trying to make his way in this world. But how much does he want to impress Siggy and how much is he... Because then he goes behind Siggy's back. So he's learned mm. something. How many of these people are bad and how many of them are good? And he's still done all that work for Siggy anyway, ultimately. Well, I thought his narrative arc was actually quite interesting because you think initially that he's going to be like the good guy that takes these corrupt guys down or like doesn't give in to it. But he's actually quite quickly kind of co-opted into the system and also this whole thing about they go to florida and there's going to be they're basically like we'll fund a load of sex workers for the business mm. trip which is clearly not really a business trip and he's you know standing aside from that and saying oh kind of being like oh i'm better than that i have a good relationship with my wife but well, then quite quickly just way throws all that out the window and really in the end turns out to be quite a nasty piece of work yeah certainly he ends in the worst position from a sort of audience point of view like you say he starts off as the kind of wide-eyed naive guy who wants to be good and then we see i mean the amount of pda as with his wife is it's mm. a bit much for me it's a bit unnecessary it's, yeah but he's like to, to demonstrate look how love in love they, they are. really are yeah and he's He's, we see a lot of that and he does seem to love his wife but very quickly he meets Ake he sleeps with her and becomes an asshole overnight I mean I don't know how much time he spent with Siggy and them but this other guy Gusti who was in the film we watched recently mm. The County he's managed to get to where he is without mm. doing a lot of that it seems but maybe it's, maybe he hasn't maybe he's just better at hiding it but I guess it's just a, a Maybe that's what Balgovin Zeta is trying to say about even people who start off quite decent are getting like corrupted by this horrible system of more money, more power. Mm. I just but, feel very sad for his wife, Agnes, and his daughter mm. because... It's like you have the perfect situation and it's like not enough. I guess he was used to money from being a footballer, although <laughs> probably not as much as Premier League players, I imagine. The interesting nuance i found in that story was obviously like you say he sleeps with ache and he sees her in this context of florida um this kind of horrible business trip <laughs> um and then when she says of course i'm the kindergarten school worker that you're at your kid's school that like completely switches his his attitude towards her well firstly that he hasn't even he would doesn't even recognize her yeah so it's partly that like well it's two things really isn't it that she's like totally dehumanized one and that and that he has this kind of idea that oh if she's a sex worker here she would never be the same person that's a uh -huh. kindergarten person so he's kind of like stripping her of that humanity i guess but also just the fact that she's okay in that fantasy world but if she comes into reality she's like offended him or like transgressed or crossed some boundary yeah this reminds me of two questions i wanted to, to ask so firstly does he choose to sleep with her when does he choose to think of her as a sex worker or mm. as the as the daughter of this really rich guy because he says basically oh, i thought you were a you were one of the ladies here mm. for our purposes but then he tells her she tells him that she's the daughter of whatever her dad is named named thorstein someone or other and then it's then that they sleep together so in my mind i'm like mm. well what was he not sleeping with her because she was a sex worker but now she's revealed who she really is he's choosing to think of her not as a sex worker but as perhaps someone who can i don't consent know yeah con consent but also as someone who can help him in his career maybe as the daughter of someone wealthy ah uh, oh see i hadn't picked up on that nuance actually at all i guess that the thing i wasn't sure about was did she think he recognized her from the kindergarten probably because she, she did. said oh isn't it weird we're we're here and we're both outsiders um and he said do i know you and she said oh i know you but i don't know you and then kind that of conversation thing. gets cut off at and that it, point yeah, yeah. so is she surprised when he doesn't recognise her or does she say that despite him because she knows he doesn't recognise her? Oh, I don't know. 
There's a lot of there's a lot of complexity. Well, so. Exactly, and it plays into the second question I had, which is why does she tell him when she tells him that she's the nursery teacher? Oh, I won't tell Agnes because. Did she think she was gonna have a relationship with this guy she knows is in a is in no, a marriage? No, to me. So that's the point where he's he's clearly the day after been like, oh, I regret it. Um, oh, what, I've made a mistake, and he's like freezing her out. So to me, she's saying that to to get at him and yeah. say, you freeze me out. Okay, well, ha ha ha. Jokes on you because I actually know your child and your wife. But it seems a bit of a silly thing to do. I guess it's like a. I know, yeah. You probably you would probably reaction. say something to spite them back. Yeah. But yeah, not the best idea. And also thought. to be like, I'm also a human. Mm. Take that. Yeah, I guess so. Vinnunot. So Solvi's story, yeah, like we said, it feels a little bit kind of extraneous like it's almost like a satellite story that in my mind is there to highlight this important piece of Icelandic history but really for the plot is all it is doing is giving Mori an excuse to sell his house um, <laughs> <laughs> looking at it cynically I wish somebody had come and offered me twice what my house was worth well I was I did the calculations right based on I mean, this is rubbish financial figuring, but he sells his house for something like 150 million kroner. That's what he's offered by Solvi. If that's what he sold it for now, that's about 900,000 pounds. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. That'll get you to Sardinia. Yeah. (laughs) But I guess that what I like about Balkan Sater is he really, he's really the one director we've looked at who specifically is dealing with current issues in Mm. the city yeah you know we've seen a lot of rural life and modern rural life we've seen a lot of contemporary stories but none like his two films that are really very much about the stuff that you don't see in film or even on telly i know that um hera hilmar had said to balfin in the run-up to this film like oh people don't do sex work in Reykjavik as a, and you know, I, you know, I don't know how old she was going into this film, but she was unaware that, that it happened. And Balvin's like done his research as he did mm. with let me fall. Like, Oh no, it definitely happens. Yeah. Uh, but she's, she was so unaware because it's not talked about. It's not represented. And yeah, I guess that's what I love about his films is that we see these things. We see tragedy, we see mm. sex work, we see drug addiction. We see all of these things now, in this film, we see the wealthy asshole bankers who brought the country to its knees, which we didn't even really see in Gnar, mm. which is the most political thing we've actually watched. So, yeah, I guess that's... I mean, I'm a big fan of Balfin Satan. I can't yeah. wait to see what happens next. Same. Did you prefer this to Let Me Fall or the other way around? I think I preferred Let Me Fall because I think it had... It did gritty realism in a bit more of a realistic way. I would say that this um, has a lot of, yeah, like I said, empathy and humanity and realism. But actually, if you look at the intricacies of the narrative, they're not necessarily that believable. 
Well, <laughs> a lot of people who are, you know, alcoholics and down, down and out don't get offered 900 grand for their house. Sure. Some people do because the development happens, but mm-hmm. a lot of the happenings of the plot were on, not that they were unbelievable, but they were on the unusual end of things. Whereas I think in Let Me Fall, it's much more depressingly typical. Yeah, I think you can see the machinations of the script here mm. really trying to bring, bring the stories together. together. Yeah, whereas Let Me Fall felt a little bit more naturalistic. But the films do feel similar. Like, we can obviously see Balfin's progression and his improvements as he's moved forward. But he's been working with the same people um, every time. So Olafur Arnalds, the famous Icelandic composer and musician, he did the soundtrack to this and Let Me Fall. And I think in this... It does a good job of doing those scenes of pure kind of melancholy and sadness really well with the piano and and Hera just looking utter, just, I don't know, hopeless at some points. Combined with that um, kind of the fast paced world of the banking, which he did again in Let Me Fall with the parties and that kind of dream atmosphere. I think Let Me Fall had a bit more of a sense of its own cinematic sound i guess i don't know whereas this maybe that's because of the three stories that they're very different but they all had to have their own score in a way did did you notice the music at all no <laughs> and not is that, that and is that something that you, i mean typically would you come out of a film and be yeah. like oh, i love the yeah music. i would and actually i didn't clock it which is perhaps to my detriment or I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign. Well, no, I think... It's working quietly away. Like I've said before on this podcast, like it's not doing the John Williams thing where it's like amping you up, mm. bringing you down. It's just sort of maybe setting the tone, but it's there and it kind of accentuates what needs to be accentuated. And again, it looks brilliant. Mm. It, feels, it feels very different to the other kinds of films we've seen. And that's not yeah. just because it's set in the city. Balfin works with... Uh, cinematographer Johan Mani Johansson who I don't know he just brings this kind of it feels like you're there I don't know how mm. to describe it I, I I wrote some notes down about other people whose work has made me feel like I was in a place and I guess with Life in a Fishbowl it really does need to give you a sense of that place mm. because we need to see Reykjavik but it reminded me of David Simon the guy who created The Wire and mm. Treme two programs where you truly feel in the cities like I have I've never been to America let alone to New Orleans but I feel like I've been to New Orleans for at least a year just in the the town getting involved with the characters the locals and the and I don't know there's something about this film and Let Me Fall just do you think it's that there's more of a focus on the characters and the narratives than I, and and so the rest of it is kind of fitting in around that. It's all about this, the story and the people. Whereas quite a lot of the films we've seen, the landscape has been pretty much uh-huh. a character of its own. And it's been as much about Iceland and the vast expanse of beauty that is Iceland as the characters and the plot. Very possibly, yeah. But that, that and, and also just the setting of Reykjavik, like we are there and we do get to see a lot of it. Like in First, for example, very, very low budget film. We don't, we see Halgrim's Kirkia, but we don't get a sense of the city. Here we get to see, you know, bars, churches, the lake. Just we we go everywhere and it just feels like, yeah, a much more rounded city presence. Uh, And yeah, it just, it just looks stunning, I think. Uh, which is what you can do with a budget, I guess. Um, but yeah, shout out to those guys because, you know, filmmakers developing a working relationship that works, if you can keep that going... You're onto a winner. You're onto a winner. And clearly, you know, Let Me Fall was fantastic, was a step on from this. Who knows what we're going to get next, but I'm very excited about it. Me too. Amazing. Uh, well, I guess that'll do. We've rambled on long enough. Yeah. Uh, I will just say one thing. I love that Florida was a yacht. <laughs> there I, are some budget constraints. I thought that maybe it wasn't filmed in Florida. Perhaps. Anyway, good film. 
What a film! And such fantastic performances! It's no wonder that Hera Hilmai is now one of Iceland's biggest acting exports. She can be seen in the film adaptation of Mortal Engines, written and produced by Peter Jackson, the TV series Da Vinci's Demons, and the TV series C, in which she plays Jason Momoa's wife. But the near future holds a lot in store for Icelandic cinema, and we're very excited. There's loads of potential new films for us to cover on Kvikmindapod in the new year, but before we get there, stay tuned for one more episode this side of Christmas. Because finally, Guðmundur Arna Guðmundsson's Beautiful Beings is being released in the UK on December the 19th, and we'll do a full spoiler-filled episode as a little Christmas present for you all. Until then, thank you all once again for listening and for all your support over the last four series. And thanks to every single person involved in creating the films we've covered. We appreciate and are passionate about the amazing work you do. So we'll see you in December. In the meantime, say hi on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to support us on Ko-fi, we're at ko-fi.com slash K-V-I-K-M-Y-N-D-A-P-O-D. Also, if you fancy getting lost in some amazing Icelandic cinema, or just world cinema in general, don't forget you can still take advantage of our collaboration with Mubi, where you can get a free 30-day trial at mubi.com slash That's it for now. Speak soon. Tack or bless. Thanks and goodbye.